The Actor in England by Arthur Pollock from The Drama, a Quarterly Review of Dramatic Literature, November 1916. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Bologna Times. The Actor in England by Arthur Pollock. As a profession, acting has led its followers a chase by no means always a merry one. Material success in such a calling depends largely upon the popularity of the profession, and its popularity has waxed and waned throughout the ages. The modern actor, however, since his rise in the Middle Ages, has suffered, comparatively speaking, no very great reverses. In England, he was set solidly upon his feet when, under the Tudors, his profession began to flourish. For a few years prior to the restoration, and for some time after, actors were reminded emphatically that they were still looked upon as rogues and vagabonds. As such, they found little favor, and the greater number of them had perforce to feed themselves and families with hunger, sighs, and tears. But thereafter, they managed once more to land upon their feet, and practically ever since an increasingly good footing has been assured them. While the evolution of acting as a means of earning bread and butter has been a long series of ups and downs, acting as an art has evolved in a circle from simplicity to simplicity. The various phases of its change lie between the simplicity which is meager and ingenuous and a simplicity infinitely more subtle, pregnant with suggestion, and born of the wisdom of experience. This progress from the artless, ineffective efforts of the novice to the simple, seemingly effortless effects of the artist is illustrated by the development of acting in England from the time of the first futile amateurs to the present day. The mutations in this evolution have been not unlike those that marked the growth of the actor's art in Greece. Acting started in the Middle Ages as unpretentious pantomime and naive recitation. By degrees, as the actor realized the possibilities latent in voice and physique, his delivery grew more studied until eventually it became self-consciously declamatory. The bubble of bombast was then pricked by the first actors who saw the advantage of employing art to appear natural. By their success, they soon were tempted into an excess of artifice, and the only recourse for their successors was a return to a simplicity which, though infinitely more sophisticated, approximated that of the novice. By the time English amateurs had gained a degree of proficiency sufficient to warrant their adopting acting as a profession, and their ranks had been augmented by clownish professional comedians of the type of Richard Tarleton and Will Kemp, playwrights had become ambitious in striving for effects, and accomplished in clothing them with flamboyant and sonorous phrases. With such stilted plays as Gorboduc and Gambesis began the period of turgid rhetoric and stately bombast, and those spectators who later went to see Kit Marlowe's Tamburlaine were greeted by the author's assurance that they would hear the actors threatening the world with high astounding terms. Equally high and astounding must have been the acting. Gayton, writing in 1654, recorded that the poets of the fortune and red bull had always a mouth measure for their actors who were terrible tear-throats and made their lines proportionable to their compasses which were sesquipedales 
a foot and a half. For the actor, it was an age of elocution and swift action. The theater that had by this time been evolved fostered this elaborateness of language and free and easy movement. The performers, as they strode about on their platform stage, were fairly in the midst of their responsive audience. In such a theater, there was an atmosphere not only of intimacy but of familiarity. The spectators all were eager to welcome with delight the great feast of language prepared for them, whether it were a dissertation on the quality of mercy or a fanciful description of the many kinds of melancholy popular among the Elizabethan gallants, and the player was equally anxious to demonstrate his ability to. Drop trippingly from the tongue a mint of phrases. Of the actors of that day, little is known, but it is evident that the sturdy Icard Burbage and the ebullient Edward Alleyne, facile of tongue and agile, were the most prominent men on the boards, and they were, no doubt, models of this exuberant style of acting. Alleyne was perhaps the more boisterous. And the less subtle of the two, for he had been trained in the most turbulent parts in the plays of Kidd and Marlowe. There are indications that Burbage was of a somewhat different type. Even at so early a stage in the history of English acting, signs were not wanting of a tendency to go back to nature. Burbage seems to have represented that tendency. He had gained his experience in the same company as Shakespeare. His associate and Shakespeare, if we are willing to let Hamlet's words bear weight with us, was dissatisfied with the prevailing histrionic methods and ambitious to make the acting of his time less unlike the natural actions of normal persons. These actors had the pleasant privilege of seeing the profession they followed well established, and though they and their fellow performers were not yet considered any too respectable, they could not well have been more popular. They were much mourned when they died and well remunerated while they lived. Some of them grew rich enough to be reviled by the Puritans for their lavish display of magnificence. It was Edward Alleyne, the most affluent of them all, who, with parts of his wealth, founded Dulwich College. The best of the players, those upon whom fell most of the work of producing the plays, were shareholders in the company to which they belonged, and hence received, in addition to their salaries, a portion of the profits. The inferior members of each troop, however, were paid only a weekly wage. It was much the same managerial system that Moliere later introduced in France, and passed on to the Comédie Française. When the theaters were closed in 1642, all actors were classed once more as undesirables. Few of the old and experienced actors were left when, in 1660, performances were again permitted. Young and untrained men. Had to be depended upon to take their places, and now, for the first time in England, women found their way to the stage to fill, thenceforth, most of the female roles, as for some time they had been doing in France and Italy. Despite the forced infusion of new blood, many of the old traditions seemed somehow to have been handed down, and the declamatory style, now lacking much of the old spontaneity and grown more conventional, still endured. 
Thomas Betterton, who quickly rose above his contemporaries, kept alive many of the old methods. He had been tutored by D'Avenant, who was familiar with the Shakespearean conception of what acting ought to be. With his dignified, somewhat ponderous declamation, Betterton was the greatest figure on the stage of the period, and when he died in 1710, the Elizabethan style lost its last great exponent. He was perhaps the first English actor to work out definite theories of acting, one of the first, at least, to put his theories in such a form that they could be handed down for the benefit of future generations. And with his talents as an actor, he combined a knowledge of stagecraft, which he supplemented by a study of French methods in Paris. After the death of Betterton, the actor began to go to nature for his inspiration. As Callipides and Nicostratus had done centuries before in Greece, so Doggett and Macklin did now in England. Comedy was the first to feel the effects of this new attitude of the actor. In both comedy and tragedy, characterization had grown to lack differentiation, had become stereotyped. Most comic characters were portrayed by clownish, low comedy methods and impersonated by actors who used the same uninspired line of business in part after part. Thomas Doggett, a comedian, broke away from these narrow prescribed limits. He had been looking about him at life and his fellow men, and it struck him that it would be a good thing for his fame, and for the drama too, if he were to give minutely characterized and naturalistic representations on the stage. Of the particular types of character called for by the roles assigned him. By putting his idea into effect, he changed the whole conception of how comic characters should be played, and enlarged the horizon of the comic actor. This new method of character acting was taken up by Coley Gibber and other actors of the day. Gibber, as an actor, was rather limited in range, but his success was considerable nevertheless. The modern actor owes him much. By virtue of the fact that he was a man of good family, thorough education, and sound business instincts, his presence on the stage reflected credit upon his profession and served indirectly to improve the position of its members, both socially and financially. In 1741, Charles Macklin did for tragedy what Doggett and his imitators had done for comedy. His realistic characterization of Shylock in *The Merchant of Venice* was revolutionary. Instead of Shylock played in a spirit of broad farce, as tradition then demanded, he portrayed a Jew whose character and actions were those of a strong, vengeful, virile human being. His performance was a shock to the old school's admirers and an inspiration to the younger actors who were in a position to oppose the old and eager to adopt the new. This trend toward truer character interpretation, David Garrick. Undertook to carry on, the style Doggett and Macklin had devised and courageously introduced, he perfected. His acting was so strangely lifelike, so simple and human, that Churchill was prompted to say that one could not be pleased with nature without appreciating Garrick. And Goldsmith paid a tribute to his art when he wrote that it was only off the stage that Garrick acted. Those actors whose methods. Had been molded by tradition, grudgingly made way for him. 
though traces of the grand style were still evident years after in the work of john kemble and his sister mrs siddons garrick very effectually ended the sway of the monotonous colorless declamatory delivery before his death in seventeen seventy nine he had done more for acting than any other man of the theatre has ever done in his own work he developed to a great degree the ability to make his silent eloquent by betraying a proper interest in what the other characters were saying and doing while he himself had no lines to speak by insisting that the other members of his company be equally sedulous in their attempts to acquire the art of listening and by setting both them and the actors of rival companies so good an example he no doubt had an effect upon the group acting of his time it is a fact at any rate that while he was prominent upon the stage great progress was made toward the perfection of ensemble acting up to garrick's day a certain class of spectators had retained the privilege of sitting in all their arrogance upon the stage garrick dislodged them and thereby did his fellows a considerable service with his numerous innovations he cleared away much of the old stultifying convention and opened new and fertile fields for progress countless present-day traditions especially those that have to do with the interpretation of shakespeare are traceable to him his talent wealth popularity and wide acquaintance among the most cultured and influential people of his day increased respect for the actor's calling garrick has made a player a higher character said johnson not long after this salutary revision of the actor's methods the art of playmaking began to decline after the appearance of she stoops to conquer and the school for scandal playwrights ceased almost entirely to progress stopped striving to create and were satisfied to be imitators in the years that followed they became obsessed with the desire to emulate shakespeare and slavishly wrote feeble dramas with his plays as models later they fell to aping the playwrights then popular in france and adapting their well-made dramas as a result the plays of the time were flimsy and artificial histrionic material being thus very nearly negligible the actor's methods now received undue emphasis and attention by playing in the contemporary theatrical concoctions and performing over and over again the dramas of the past the player developed his powers as a character actor and portrayer of emotion to a degree almost unprecedented and since the aim of the authors who devised plays for him was to make them theatrically effective rather than true to life he in presenting their works was tempted to be equally meretricious nature was neglected technique approached very close to perfection it was a time of little matter and much art so while the art of dramas drama conceived as interpretive of life marked time the talents of the actor grew a bit overripe and gave evidence of a tendency to go to seed just as had been the case at a similar stage in the development of greek acting toward the end of the nineteenth century new theatrical evils began to have their effect upon the art of acting the advent of the strictly commercial manager the exaltation of the star the growth of the long-run system and the disappearance of the stock company all made the actor's proper development more difficult and they continued still to do so 
during the interval between sheridan and the men who laid the foundation of the modern english realistic drama actors became virtuosi and completely outshone the dramatists it was this epoch that produced such notable players as kemble and mrs siddons the keens mccready and irving they were figures of great importance in the growth of the art of presenting plays they were great actors but their greatness was of a kind that the drama of to-day does not demand when the play began again to be the thing with which to attract the public a different style of acting was made necessary robertson's teacup and saucer drama and the school of realists it started combined with the influence of ibsen and his social drama produced a type of play in which acting that is primarily a display of vocal and physical flexibility and emotional pyrotechnics would seem incongruous conditions of play presentation were also changing the platform stage had shrunk to the so-called apron which in turn gave place to the picture frame proscenium thus isolating the actor from his audience improved methods of lighting made exaggerated gestures and grimaces unnecessary at the same time scenery had evolved to a point where interiors might be shown and made to take on the appearance of actual rooms carefully and completely furnished and suitably illuminated under such conditions the acting that had long been looked upon as natural was seen to have less real relation to nature than had once been supposed the actor had reached his goal and not content with that had pushed on until he overreached it new requirements and new conceptions of what his aim ought to be forced him to change his methods and approach a new goal by a different road so we have the acting of the present for the most part less technically perfect than was the acting in the period from kemble to irving less striking having less of splendor in it but we like to think that it is deeper and truer more natural than natural acting has ever been at any rate it is the acting that modern conditions and contemporary drama and new ideals make necessary and desirable edmund keen with his terrible flashes of fury would hardly feel at home in a drama like the weavers among the irish players henry irving to whom the english stage and the english actor are so greatly indebted would find no place to fit him partridge who could see nothing worthy in garrick's hamlet would be extremely bored by the acting of our time to him our efforts to reveal people deporting themselves in drawing-rooms or tenement houses as people who are used to having drawing-rooms or living in tenement houses would not be acting at all and he would not understand mr yeats when he says no singer of my works must ever cease to be a man and become an instrument nor would the actor of what we now call the palmy days have wished to obey this mandate for in doing so he would have been defeating his own ends the acting of keen and irving and the men of the period they represent was ornate the aim of the modern actor is truth unadorned in its evolution acting has completed the circle it has passed through the stage of excessive artifice and arrived once more at simplicity end of the actor in england by arthur pollock